Welcome to Bible Quest, the New York City, New Jersey Philly edition. I'm Jeff Smelser, and today I'm coming to you from Biglerville, Pennsylvania, which is not my usual location, uh, but Joe is in his usual location. Joe Works coming to us from Fairlawn, New Jersey. Good afternoon, Noah. Uh, Joe, Joe. <laughs> Noah is our webcast engineer. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Uh, glad you're safe in Biglerville. The weather is not too bad there. Whether, you know, there's not a flake of snow to be seen. There's not even a raindrop to be seen here. It's cloudy, uh, but we had five inches at my house when I left this morning. It was still snowing hard, and the roads were in pretty bad shape. Well, there are a lot of flakes around where I live. Yeah. <laughs> I am not sure you just are talking about the white, fluffy kind. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a lot of snow here also. With, with, with that, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the creation count account in Genesis. We got started. We didn't finish, if I recall correctly. Last week, you and I were both traveling. We were both out of town, and so we didn't have our webcast. And appreciated comments from those of you who sent notes saying you missed the webcast last week. So today, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. But before we get to Genesis, in just a few minutes, we will get to Genesis, Lord willing, and talk more about the Genesis account of creation. Um, but, uh, Joe, let, let me get you to tell us just a little bit about a sermon you preached yesterday morning, just to kind of give us uh, some insights there. Yeah, uh, so some, a lot of people don't know, Jeff and I had a chance to go to uh, a series of studies on the book of Galatians uh, this last week, and uh, that's why we didn't have the webinar last week. But... Um, in that study of Galatians, uh, very enlightening, very helpful for me to see that book and uh, some of the things that I had not noticed before. Also, this Sunday, I was scheduled to uh, preach on an overview of the book of Genesis, but my mind was so wrapped up in Galatians, it's hard to, to switch gears. And then, uh, I guess it was Saturday, you know, as uh, they say, as the, the dawn is approaching on Sunday, preachers become inspired uh, <laughs> to write. Um, uh, so, I, Saturday, I was sitting, preparing for the lesson, and all of a sudden, it dawned on me how much Galatians is talking about the uh, book of Genesis. And uh, so, went back, looked at some notes, and uh, took a look at particularly Galatians 3, and was just impressed. I think there's eight different verses in Galatians 3 and then a couple of more in Galatians 4 that use the word promise or promises. Um, and uh, so in particular, uh, verse 6, for example, of Galatians 3, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are faith are sons of God. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, uh, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are are blessed with believing Abraham. Uh, going on from there, uh, we then pick up, and I think the first place that promise is used is in verse 14, and it's used several times in uh, 14 and verse 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. Um, uh, I've lost count here, 21, and uh, then uh, 22, and eventually over in verse 29 as well. I'm probably leaving one or two out there. But he just keeps talking about the promise given to Abraham. Sometimes he talks about promises were made to uh, Abraham. 
And he talks, he wraps that up in verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so thinking about Abraham's descendants uh, and being the recipients, being the beneficiaries, being the heirs of the promise given to Abraham, going back and looking at there again, verses six through nine, um, just really caused me to go back and look at the book of Genesis, focusing on the promises. But in doing that, before we move away from Galatians, let me just mention this uh, fact. In verse 8, for those that suggest that, you know, we don't need to study the Old Testament and so forth, I think this is one of the great places to recognize uh, Galatians 3.8. Galatians 3, chapter 3. Yeah, I'm sorry. Galatians 3.8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And so what's gospel mean? Everybody knows this, but not everybody knows this. What does gospel mean? Uh, the good news. And so you're saying that I mean you're you're highlighting the fact that in Galatians it says that the gospel was preached to Abraham, the good news. And we associate the good news with salvation in Jesus Christ. The good news was preached to Abraham, and he lived 1,800 years before Jesus. Yeah, re- remarkable. We, you know, uh, we, we talk about the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, we need to include Genesis in that then, according to uh, Paul's words here. I don't know what all you have in mind is pointing out implications of that fact, but one that comes to my mind is the fact so many people look at Judaism as one religion and Christianity as another and Buddhism is another and Islam is another. There's these different world religions. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures of the Jews, uh, they were uh, leading up to Christ so that in Abraham, when God makes one of these promises, all families of the earth can be blessed in his descendants. That's about Jesus. So there's a continuity from the, the message of God to the Jews on down through the, the message that is preached by Jesus and his apostles. Amen. Uh, my wife Beth often makes the point in the children's classes that when we open our Bibles at the beginning of Genesis, it's as if God is saying, whispering, Jesus is coming. And then as you go further through the story, the sound gets louder and louder until we get to the prophets, and they are screaming, Jesus is coming. And then we turn to the New Testament, and he has manifested himself. All right, so Joe, this, we, this is not what we intended to talk about. Uh, we do have to get to the creation story in just a moment because I said we would, so we're going to get to it. But th- this leads to a question I've occasionally heard people ask, and let me throw this out there. And you, those of you who are watching, uh, you can send your answer to this question uh, by means of the comments section at the Facebook page, and Noah, our webcast engineer, will get them to us, or you can send it through the Zoom app if you're watching that way. Um, but if God's plan all along was to send Jesus into the world to die for our sins, why didn't he do that right away? Why wait all that time from the creation all the way through the history of Israel and down through their time of exile and their return and all of that until finally 2,000 years ago Jesus comes? Why wait? 
It's an excellent question. I don't know if we have one passage that makes uh, that, that gives an answer to that or an explanation. If you do know that one passage, go ahead and just stop me. Uh. <laughs> well, one that comes to my mind, although I'm going to check and see if we've got any of our viewers sending in some thoughts real quickly here before I open my mouth here. Uh, so viewers get it in, beat me to it, or I'm going to, I'm going to throw one thought out. There, there are actually multiple answers that, and, and maybe even answers we don't know, but I believe the, the Bible does give us multiple answers. One answer is seen in Galatians chapter three and verse 22, the scripture talking about the old Testament scripture, shut up all things under sin that the promise, what you're talking about by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. One of the things that was accomplished under the law of Moses is man's sin and need for salvation uh, was demonstrated by God. Uh, man could see that he was not measuring up to the standard that God had set. But I do think we do have a, a comment here. Oh, there's a, a guy named Scott Smelser. I've heard of him. Uh, he says, for one thing, he wouldn't have been the fulfillment of the prophecies. And, and that's true. But then that leads to this question. Why did Jesus need to be the fulfillment of prophecies? Why couldn't God have just sent him? Uh, Steve Wolfgang sends in a comment. He, he calls attention to Galatians chapter 4. And, of course, in Galatians chapter 4, you have the idea of the fullness of time in verse 4. I don't know that that's what Steve is calling attention to. But let me say this. In Galatians 4, when it says the fullness of time, uh, let me read it. Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. I don't think we should suppose that means that God was sitting up there in heaven. He's looking down at earth and going, hey, look, uh, the whole world has one language, Greek. That would kind of be useful if I were to send the Messiah now. And then, hey, look, the Romans are in charge, and they brought the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. That would be useful for the spread of the gospel. Hmm, I think maybe this would be a good time to send Jesus. I think the fullness of time doesn't mean that. The fullness of time means God had ordained a time. You go back to the book of Daniel and uh 600 years before Jesus comes, it is laid out, the order of events that are going to transpire before Jesus comes, the, 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 the nations that are going to be in power are going to rise and fall. And then it said, then the Christ will come, the Son of, the, the Son of Man will come, and, and the kingdom will be given to him. So I think the fullness of time there means when, when the time that God had stated had to pass before the Son would come into the world, when that had passed, the time was full. Now it's ready. The sun is in the world. Joe. Yeah. Uh, Scott comes back and responds again. Uh, uh, Ephesians 1, in reference to this fullness of time, as uh, Steve Wolfgang had pointed out, it's in Galatians 4. Also here in uh, Ephesians 1, a couple of passages. I'm not sure exactly which one Scott Smelser was referring to, but thinking about how uh, verse 4 just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And so thinking about the good pleasure of God's will, not just, oh, God really liked that date or something like that, but this fit into his plan perfectly, uh, dropping over to verse 9, maybe for time's sake, uh, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one things, uh, uh, 
into one, all things in Christ. And so just recognizing that this was God's infinite wisdom uh, uh, to, to, to make it such. And going back to your original comment in Galatians 3, shutting, us, shutting all mankind under sin, causing us to realize that we cannot save ourselves. If right after Genesis 3 and the first sin, Jesus had come down, died on the cross, there might not be the appreciation for that uh, sacrifice um, had we not had the, the record of people trying to save themselves and redeem themselves and make themselves righteous in so many failing ways throughout the Old Testament even. Talk about the idea of not being an appreciation for what God was doing. Think about this, too. When Christ comes, he is a high priest. He provides a sacrifice. So he's an intercessor as a high priest, and he provides a sacrifice that is required for the atonement of sin. He is a king ruling over the kingdom of God. Uh, you, you think about those ideas, and if, if that had all happened in Genesis, the third chapter, as soon as man sinned, what... What, what do we need an intercessor for? What does there have to be a sacrifice for? What about a kingdom and king? Why do we need that? But those ideas had all been developed. God, over the period of time that transpired before the Christ came, through the nation of Israel, taught the concept of a kingdom with a king, taught the concept of the need for sacrifice and atonement, taught the need for an intercessor, a go-between between God and man, so that when Jesus comes into the world and he is all those things, that understanding is in place, having been taught through the Jewish nation. Somebody recently asked the question, wouldn't it have been harder for God to send Jesus in 2018 when we have uh, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, and uh, all the modern forms of, of social media? Uh, and the, the answer was simply that you can't get the gospel in 140 characters. Uh, <laughs> people's attention span wouldn't have allowed it. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, man's wisdom isn't going to, to, to understand, I think, all of of God's purposes here, uh, but certainly all the reasons that you pointed out are extremely valid and to help us to appreciate our relationship with the Father through Jesus. One last comment before we move back to the creation account in Genesis. You focused on the idea of promises. Uh, one of the things we see in the Old Testament is, is a demonstration of the reliability of God's promises. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's why, so in the New Testament, we have these comments about the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you then turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12, and Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, and Genesis 26, and Genesis 28, and you see God making these promises to those individuals, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and finding them fulfilled in Christ. Typically, uh, thanks be to God when we see those things Fulfilled in the Gentiles, he's talking about you and I. All right, let's go back to Genesis, the creation story. Uh, two weeks ago when we talked about this, we did touch on the fact that while it, you know, at first blush, if I don't know anything about the Bible and I pick up the Bible and I read God created everything in six days, and, and then I read that there was a talking snake and that the woman was created when the man was put to sleep and a rib was taken out of his side. I'm going to read all of that, and I'm going to think, wow, that kind of sounds like mythology, or that sounds like fairy tales. Um, but then, lo and behold, we come to the New Testament, 
And we see Jesus and Paul alluding to the first three chapters of Jesus, of Genesis, and seemingly taking these accounts as literal and basing things they teach on these accounts. And if we end up coming to a position, coming to a point where we say, you know, the, 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 the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is compelling. And uh, if Jesus was raised from the dead and he said he would be raised from the dead and he claimed to be the son of God, he must be. And so he must know what he's talking about. And so we have to go back and, and revisit then Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 in light of what Paul and Jesus say about them. So let's just quickly, I don't, we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but let's highlight the passages where Jesus and Paul refer to these three chapters in a way that indicates they, they take these cha chapters literally. And I'll invite our viewers to chime in here. Uh, if you guys can, uh, you guys and gals, you men and women, you gentlemen and gentle ladies, uh, if you can uh, come up with the passages there. Um, I'll stammer around here for a couple of seconds and see whether Joe beat you to it or you beat Joe to it. Uh, all right, let's see who's got, who's got a passage. All right, time's up. Who's got one of those passages? <laughs> All right. Uh, how, how about Matthew 19, um, when uh, you have the description of the question of marriage and divorce given by the Pharisees and uh, Jesus' response to that um, in verse 4. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so that's a quote from Genesis 2.24. seems as if Jesus is recognizing God created, God made man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, another passage that's a little more vague, but I'll mention in John the 8th chapter, Jesus certainly seems to be alluding to the, the story of the first sin in Genesis 3, when he talks about the devil as a liar from the beginning, as a murderer from the beginning, and the father of lies. And of course, in this story in Genesis chapter 3, there's a serpent uh, that speaks to Eve and tells her a lie, tells her that she will not die if she eats of the forbidden fruit. And by virtue of that, he brings about the death of man. And of course, in Revelation, the 12th chapter, that individual is referred to as the old serpent or the serpent of old. Um, there are a couple of other passages, First Corinthians chapter 11 and First Timothy chapter 2 in the writings of Paul. Which one you want to take a look at? And I'll take a look at the other one, Joe. So you said first, you said first Corinthians 11. Yeah, I'll, I'll grab that one. All right. Well, I'll go to first Timothy two while you go there and just we'll bring me, me mention these two passages and then we'll move on. But in first Timothy, the second chapter, um, Paul is talking about uh, the role of women and, and how they should conduct themselves in the house of God. And for what it's worth, I don't think he means they're particularly certainly not a church building and not even just limited to a local assembly, but within the, the kingdom of God. And he says this in verse uh, 12, I permit not a woman to teach nor to have dominion over a man, but to be in quietness for Adam was first formed, then Eve. Well, where would he get that? Well, Genesis two tells us about the man being created from the dust of the ground. And then after that, the woman is created from his side. 
And then it says, verse 13, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. And it goes on in verse 14, it says, Adam was not beguiled or deceived, but the woman, being beguiled, has fallen into transgression. Well, what's that about? Well, the deception when uh, the serpent lied to the woman and she believed the lie, Genesis 3. You got 1 Corinthians 11? Yeah, and so again, in uh, talking about the relationship of man and woman um, and the headship in this uh, context, um, maybe picking up in verse 9, um, uh, uh, well, let me go back to verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man, referencing Genesis 2 then. Uh, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Again, in harmony with what is described in Genesis 2. Uh, uh, that probably covers the, the ideas there. There's, we can go on and read the rest of the text, but focusing on Paul recognizing the order of creation, man and then woman. Uh, also, another passage comes to my mind is Romans, the fifth chapter, in talking about uh, the introduction to sin. Um, he, he ties that back to Adam. Uh, specifically, Paul is mentioning the, the sin that came into the world through uh, the first man, through Adam. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. All right. So I think two weeks ago then we went on and we, we discussed the idea that we have two different accounts of, of creation. We have the sequential account in chapter one, which we can really think of as kind of a prologue to the book of Genesis. And then we get into chapter two, and you have the first of the natural um, chapter breaks, I guess you could say, with that introductory phrase in Genesis chapter two, verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And then we have this, this second account being given. And there's a difference in two accounts. And, and if you think that they're both intended to be sequential accounts or chronological accounts, then it looks like in the first account, the vegetation was created first and then man. And in the second account, you might think it's saying man was created first and then the vegetation because in verse 5, it says, now no shrub of the field. This is chapter 2, verse 5. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So you might think, oh, that means he didn't create the plants until he created man to cultivate the ground. Well, we, we had an illustration for that kind of language a couple of weeks ago. But the point I want to stress here is Genesis 2 is not trying to tell us in what order all of creation took place. Um, like the light first and then the things that give the light or the vegetation first and, and then the, the plant, uh, the animals and man. Uh, chapter two is really more of, a, of an account of creation that focuses upon really the centerpiece of God's creation, which is man and male and female. Chapter one just says God created the male and female, but it doesn't then tell us about the difference in the creation of male and female. And one of the big ideas in chapter two about the creation of male and female is the idea that God created the woman as a help to the man, a help suitable or fit or meet for the man. And this is, that's a profound idea. It points to what God has in mind marriage to be, two people uh, suited for each other. Um, and man is going to be the leader in that relationship. Um, but he is to view the woman 
as as somebody who is created um, from him and therefore is his complement, is the completer of who he is, to put it that way. Um, thoughts, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thus, Jesus comes back to this text to describe what God's intention was for the, the husband-wife relationship. Does, is Beth your completer? <clears throat> Amen. Yes, absolutely. Without a doubt, unquestionably. Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't be who we are. Or And I've made this observation, you know, I'm a preacher of the gospel. And in my efforts to preach the gospel, um, I, there's some things that I, I do well. And there's some other things I do that I'm sure drive brethren nuts. But, uh, but brethren have put up with me, I think, to large extent um, because of the wife who works with me. And uh, they like they like having her influence and her the benefit of her efforts around. And I, so I've heard that a lot. Yes, I, I agree. Yeah, about about me in, in, <laughs> in particular, yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> no, it's true though. It's true. Oh, I, I have heard the same thing in relationship to myself as well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now let's move on to chapter three then, and this story of the first sin. So uh, let's just, there's some thoughts that I have in mind here, but what thoughts jump out at you or to any in our audience that are really important for us to notice in this story of the first thing? Because God creates everything and it's all good. That's what it says back in Genesis chapter one and verse 31. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And I think of the passage in James one, I think it's about, is it about verse 17? Is it that far? No, it's not that far down. Uh, where everything that comes from God is good. There's no variation or shadow by turning. It's not like you look at God's creation and from one perspective, you say, oh, it looks pretty good, and then you turn around, oh, there's the bad side. No, God's creation is good, and then man sins. So what observations would you have there? Yeah, uh, so the thing that strikes me is we often rightly talk about the first sin here, but it's not just the first sin, it's also the first temptation, um, and maybe we kind of gloss over that in our telling of the story, especially to young people. Um, but I think we ought to emphasize the way that the serpent uh, seeks to tempt Eve uh, and in turn uh, Adam uh, in Genesis 3:6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate of it. Um, and so that idea of what she sees from this tree, but if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The same things about this tree, that it was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, was true of the rest of God's creation. Yeah. It's the desire that, that Satan has, has stirred this desire in her heart um, to focus in on the this forbidden tree. And so um, let, let me ask them just some basic questions here. Did he, and I may have missed something there, Joe, because Noah was telling me that we have another comment, and the comment is coming from Scott, and it goes back to what we were saying before. And Noah says, this comment is not worth sharing, but he felt <laughs> as our webcast engineer to go ahead and tell us what Scott said. And what Scott said was, uh, it's not worth sharing because I guess it's obvious and everybody knows it, and that is that everybody likes Libby and Beth more than you and me. And so, all right, thank you, Scott, for that insight. Uh, just 
if Joe and I needed our self-esteem built up, uh, we know to look elsewhere than Scott. <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, I, I really value Scott's opinion because of Bertina. Yes, right, 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 right. All right. So Scott also says um, the first sin was followed by the first excuses, which gets us back on track here. Um, so we'll get to that in just a minute. But this first sin, did Eve know that if she ate of this tree, she would die? She essentially quotes God. Uh, the wording is not exactly the same, but she certainly gets the point in Genesis 3, 3, um, 2 and 3. The woman quotes God in talking to the serpent uh, that they can't eat of it. She says, nor shall you touch it. Uh, so she really did understand the, the prohibition that God had laid forth there. Yeah, so then if she knew the, the prohibition, and uh, she knows that's from God, and now she has this serpent telling her, and I have to grant, a talking serpent, that's impressive, but she's got a serpent nonetheless telling her, no, you won't die, and this is at best one of God's creatures. So why does she believe this creature rather than the creator when the, God said, you won't die, or you will die if you eat it, and, and the creature says, oh, you won't die. Ask the question again, I'm sorry. Why does she believe the creature, the serpent, that says you won't die, when she knows the creator, God has said you will die if you eat of the forbidden fruit? Yeah, so, so he has entertained, uh, he's placed into to her mind this, this question uh, because he is, as the accuser, not only does he accuse man, he's accusing God uh, in this text. He is. That you know, God doesn't want you to do this because then you will be like him. So, and that goes on a lot in our world today. People fault God. They say, if there's a good God who's all-powerful, then why is there all this disease? Why are there all these tragedies in the world? And so they're, they're accusing God, and that allows them then to believe a lie. And it allowed her to believe a lie, but she was willing to accept the accusation against God especially because she wanted to eat of the fruit. Genesis chapter uh, 3 and verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, all of that's about what she wanted. She wanted to eat the fruit. It was appealing, beautiful, and she had believed the lie that it would make her wise, and so she took it and ate. And that's when we get in trouble. When we allow ourselves to be deceived because we want to do something that God says don't do. Yeah. Uh, Steve Wolfgang adds to that thought. You know, Satan begins with this discussion in verse 3 by asking a question, you know, challenging, you know, as she's going to answer this, she's saying, she's going to have to say, God doesn't want me to do this. It's being put in her response is being forced to put it into the negative. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? The serpent knows the answer to that. Uh, he knows it. But the way he's worded it, um, as, uh, as Steve Wolfgang makes it, a not-so-subtle undermining of God's statements. Uh, did God really say this? Uh, or uh, by implication, uh, do you really think God cares about that? Um, right. Yeah. Which now puts, and, and when we think that way today, we're putting ourselves in the position of judging God. 
we're we're now exalting really ourselves as the our arbiters of of what makes sense and what should be and shouldn't be. Well, all right, go ahead. You were going to say something. Well, I was going to say, uh, you know, we have all kinds of examples of that, as you alluded to earlier, but thinking about the questions of our society regarding homosexuality and abortion and uh, the relationship of the husband and the wife and headship and submission and, and just about every sort of controversial issue that is really in uh, our uh, cultural headlines today, Come back to this idea of, well, I know what it says in the text, but does God really care about that? That's not what that means. I don't care about it, so why should God care about it? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we, it, it's our place to interpret what God meant instead of understand what he said. Yeah. Now, we had a comment come a little bit earlier. We have the first excuses, the first passing of the buck, the first blaming somebody else in this chapter. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. So yeah. he eats the fruit, and she gives to her husband, and he eats, and then God confronts him. What happens? Yeah, and, and maybe just one statement before that. You, you even see a reversal of the order there where the woman is leading the man, uh, which is part of that problem, I think, and I think maybe even alluded to in, in some of those earlier texts we looked at in the New Testament. Right. Um, and so, But God doesn't come to Eve first. He comes to Adam first which mm-hmm. is sort of really intriguing to see how that played out from the sin to the, uh, to the consequences. That is, that's interesting here. Uh, it's as if to say the man is responsible here. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we husbands who try to lead a home, we need to think about that. Uh, we need to stand up and take some leadership. We are responsible. All right, so then the first excuses. Yeah. Um, so you've got the uh, coming to, to Adam and God says, where are you? I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Uh, have you eaten from the tree, tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man says, verse 12, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Uh, so uh, Earlier, he had made the exclamation this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But now, you know, when he first saw the woman, and I think it was Wilson Adams that uh, paraphrased chapter 2 and verse 23 um, by, by beginning it by saying, wow, uh, part of me. Um, and, uh, and now he, has, he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. It's the woman that you gave me. Um, and so the wording there seems very purposeful. So, yeah, he, he, it seems like he's saying it's her fault and it's your fault. He's even blaming God for, for giving me the woman. He, he could have just as easily said, the woman did it and just blamed her. But he adds, the woman that you gave me, either he's blaming God or he's excusing himself from the equation or both. So then, all right, um, then God speaks to the woman. And what does she do? Uh, well, uh, the serpent deceived me. And I ate verse 13. You know, and, and some of us who are older will remember a, a character that uh, Flip Wilson used to do, and the, the devil made me do it, that, that kind of thing. You know, I believe the devil is real, and um, there is an influence in this world that, that comes from the devil. But none of us is going to be able to blame the devil 
God has spoken to us just as surely as he spoke to, to Adam and told him, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. They had the truth, and we have the truth in the world today. And so, yes, the devil is at work, but we're not going to be able to blame the devil in the day of judgment when we stand before God. Yeah, I think about the fact that everything that Adam said and everything that Eve said is accurate. The woman whom you gave to me, uh, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The woman, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Every statement is correct. Whenever we struggle with understanding half-truths, this is a great passage to consider. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not accepting any of the responsibility in their own minds, um, and, you know, the, they, they could either come and say, well, no, I didn't, everything I said was, was accurate, and it was. But it's irrelevant. Yeah, that's, that's, we see that. Uh, people want to, to point to facts that may be true, but are not relevant to their own responsibility. And that makes them a victim. Yes. In both of these cases, Adam is first a victim of God and Eve's uh, arrangements. The serpent, uh, Eve is a victim of the serpent. That's what happens to, to us um, is, you know, I remember shortly after I became a Christian, I'll try to tell the story quickly. Shortly no, go ahead. Christian, I had, a, I had a very foul mouth, used all kinds of language. I understood that that was wrong. Sometime after becoming a Christian, something had happened uh, in my house, and uh, my uh, stepsister had done something, not terrible by any means, but I just blurted it out. A, a cuss word at her, and then I immediately said, "Now look what you made me do." <laughs> it, was, it was just as ignorant of a statement as could be, but I just thought you've placed me in this situation where I've lost control of my tongue. But she hadn't done that, right? Um, but that's the way that we think, right? Good, good, good. All right. So now what happens is God makes some comments to the serpent and then to the woman, and then to the man. And, and let me just go ahead and, and say uh, what God had said is true. The man and the woman are going to die. And the upshot here immediately is they're going to be driven out of the presence of God, out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. So we see now the problem of sin. Sin separates man from God. God is righteous and holy. Everything that God had created was good, and now man has ruined that and ruined himself. But let's take a moment here to talk about the particular things God says, excuse me, to the serpent, to the woman, and to the man. Uh, so I'll start with the serpent, and then if you'll pick it up with what he says to the woman in verse 15, uh, verse 16. But to the serpent, in verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. My take on this, and, and if you understand this differently, say so, Joe. My take on this, that here in this verse, God is addressing the creature, the animal, through whom the devil spoke. And, and as a result, the serpent is going to be something that crawls on its belly. I suppose this could well mean that up until this point, serpents had legs. And, and if you study biology, you'll, you'll probably come across the idea that snakes and their skeletal makeup, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I think this is what they, they say, seem to have 
some evidence of having had legs at some time. I don't know anything about that. But I have no problem with the idea that perhaps the snake had legs, and now God is going to dec- decree from now on they're going to crawl on their belly. God can do this. He created everything. If he wants to change what snakes are at some point, he can do that. And it's going to serve as a reminder to all man, man, mankind evermore of this story. And I'll tell you what, it's effective for me because I don't like snakes. <laughs> and, and most of mankind uh, feels that same way. I think it's really interesting how powerful this stands out, even if people don't know the source of it. Um, very few people are really affectionate toward all snakes, particularly in a situation where one of them is crawling towards you or something like that. I oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want that to happen. But then in verse 15, it seems that God turns his attention to the one who is speaking through the snake. And we find out who that is in the New Testament. And we mentioned John 8 earlier in Revelation, the 12th chapter. It's those passages where we learn it is the serpent who is speaking. It is the, the devil, Satan, who is speaking through the serpent. And it seems to me that in verse 15, God is addressing the devil. And he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. So when we think about the seed of the devil, you think of John 8, and Jesus talks about the unbelieving Jews of his day and says their father is the devil. So those who disbelieve, those who reject God, they are the seed of the devil. And then it says, uh, I open enmity between you and the woman, And between your seed and her seed, well, her seed could be all mankind. Uh, Certainly, Jesus is the seed of woman in particular, and just a woman. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, 1 John 3, 8. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That, That really seems to be a connection there. Yes, I think so. And then that sets us up for the last part of verse 15 in Genesis 3, where God says, He, meaning the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. If you and I get into a fight, and I crush your heel, but you crush my head, you've obviously won the fight. Right. And so Jesus suffers his heel is bruised in the crucifixion. He suffers tremendously, but it's not a fatal blow, even though he dies, because he comes back from the dead. And when he comes back from the dead, Hebrews chapter 2 says, in doing so, he brings to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So now the devil, his power has been taken from him, and so Jesus is the victorious one in that conflict. Yep. You want to pick it up with what God says to the woman? Oh, we just have two minutes, so we'll have to come to what he says to the man Maybe next week, but tell us what he says to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And there's an interesting observation I'll try to make very quickly here. When it says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The language there is very similar to the language that we see in chapter 4, when Cain is upset because God has approved Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And uh, in verse 7, God says to Cain, 
if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And here comes the similar language. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And in Hebrew, it's even more clear that these phrases are similar. The one here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, or 4 and verse 7, its desire is for you, but you must master it. And the one in chapter 3, verse 17, or 16, uh, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. The idea in Genesis 4 is sin is crouching at the door, just like a uh, somebody who's going to ambush you, a criminal who's going to ambush you as you come out the door. He's there in hiding, waiting to take you. That's what sin is, and you have to overcome it. But in Genesis chapter 3, it's the woman who is that has the desire for the husband. And if that desire in the same way, it would seem that what he's talking about here, she's going to have a desire to master her husband, but he must overcome that. He must be the master. And so there's going to be a conflict here. Um, and it's kind of a warning to the woman and also a divine declaration of how things ought to be. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. All right. Um, well, we're about out of time. We've got about 30 seconds left. So if you have a final observation, Joe, we'll take it and then we'll sign off till next week. Maybe next week we can pick it up with what God says to Adam and curse upon the earth and then them being banished from the Garden of Eden. I just think that the, the great challenge in studying this is to look to see ourselves and where our weaknesses are, where we are tempted, and where we make excuses. Good. All right. Thank you all for watching. We hope to see you next week, and thank you for tuning in. Good night. Uh, good, good afternoon, Joe. <laughs> Bye now.